So it's our third week meeting virtually. It's also our third week meeting with the prophet Habakkuk. And we're exploring this minor prophetic book together um, because Habakkuk is struggling. He's struggling like we are struggling. He's got questions for God like we've got questions for God. The first week we heard some of Habakkuk's questions. Uh, We talked some about uh, trying to get to a place by God's grace where we're able to trust him even without all the answers to our questions. Then last week we looked at God's response to Habakkuk's questions and we saw how very much in control God was and, and is. Total control. So much control, in fact, we uh, looked at that answer to that catechism question that said God is so in control that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. God's response to Habakkuk's questions raised even more questions for Habakkuk. If he was puzzled before, boy, is he really puzzled now, perplexed. Uh, To borrow a word from last week, he's confounded. And I'll confess to you, I was confounded this week studying this passage. The verses we're looking at today are difficult. It was hard work to to study, to seek to understand. Um, I think that I've mentioned to you before, maybe in Sunday school class, about studying God's word, maybe in a sermon. But when I begin with a passage to study it, be it to preach or teach, uh, I print it out on a big sheet of paper, uh, double or tripled space, and then I begin to scribble all over it. And I mark it up, and I underline, and I circle, and I draw arrows connecting ideas, and I leave a wide margin on the side for lots and lots of questions. And this week, I filled up that margin with questions. Part of the difficulty for me was that it seemed like Habakkuk kept going back and forth, back and forth. There were moments where at times he seemed confident. He had even these bold statements of faith. But then there was confusion and there was doubt. And he was uh, even accusatory toward God. Like he couldn't make up his mind. He was vacillating. He was was wishy-washy. Maybe he was a prophet of, of weak faith. It took a while working through the text and with the help of not a few solid commentaries, to realize that Habakkuk doesn't have weak faith at all. No, in in fact, he's got quite a strong faith, but it is a perplexed faith. And I begin to see more and more that his wishy-washiness, his going back and forth, it wasn't wishy-washy at all. He was wrestling. He was wrestling with what he believed. He was wrestling with God himself. And he actually does a really good job of wrestling, and he does us a favor in doing so. He provides us a really good pattern, a good model for us to follow in our wrestling. For us, when we're perplexed, when we are in a situation that we don't understand, where we are puzzled by what God is doing. I want you to follow along as I read Habakkuk chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 12, and we'll actually go through the first verse of chapter 2. These are the very words of God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. 
O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray for the help that we need. Father, would you meet us in these moments? Would you speak to us through your word and through your spirit's illumining power, would you help us to understand? Our, Our understanding is bent and broken by the fall. Unless the spirit comes and helps us, unless the spirit comes to give us your perspective, we will flounder in our own perspective. We will remain confused. We will begin to doubt and disbelieve. We will be trapped in hopelessness. But Lord, if you come in your power and grant to us your perspective, you grant to us knowledge of your word, knowledge of the great gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus, then we of all people will abound in hope. We will have hope overflowing even in days like these. So come in power, come ready to help. We ask and pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now, I don't very often give you a how-to sermon. I don't very often give you a certain number of steps to go about doing something, uh, to be successful at something, 10 steps for this or five steps for this. But today I'm going to give you a how-to sermon. I'm going to give you four steps that I saw in this passage in Habakkuk, four steps of how to wrestle with God. You've got an outline in the worship guide that we sent out. Hopefully that will help you follow along. First step for wrestling with God is that you need to ground yourself in the nature and character of God. Now I'm going to confess something to you. It may come as a surprise. You might be shocked. I don't know a thing about wrestling. I know, I know, you may be surprised to find that out. But I would imagine if I were going to wrestle that I would want a sure footing. I'd want a stable and a strong foundation. I would want to minimize the likelihood of losing my balance. I think that's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's grounding himself. He wants a strong foundation. He wants sure footing He's essentially saying, now, what things do I know to be true? What are the givens? What are the non-negotiables? 
He's got questions. He's perplexed. He's wondering like we are, how do we have hope in a situation like we're in? But he doesn't jump straight to the problem or the thing that he's perplexed about. First, he says, all right, now let me start here. Let me start with what do I know to be true? And he covers a lot of ground in the first verse and a half. He starts with a question. It's a rhetorical question. So he already knows the answer. And you can tell by how he's asking it that he expects an affirmative answer. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? Of course you are. I know you are. You don't have a beginning. You're eternal. You're the uncreated one. See, Habakkuk knows this to be true. He knows, verse 12, that God is holy. He knows, verse 13, that God is pure. He uses language like God ordaining and God establishing. So Habakkuk also knows that God is sovereign. He's in control. He calls him at the end of verse 12, rock. He knows he doesn't change. He he knows that he is a source of unwavering strength and stability. And it's even implied in what Habakkuk says that he knows God is just. He, he speaks of God's involvement in judgment and reproof. The people are guilty. And it's right. It is just for God to bring judgment and reproof. What Habakkuk is doing is he's expressing his confidence in who God is and what he's like. So imagine, if you will, Habakkuk saying, because this is what I think he's doing. Habakkuk is saying, all right, these perplexities, these problems that I face, they're clouds, and they are obscuring for a time what God is like. But behind those clouds, this is who I know you to be. It's also what I know you to do. See, I'm confident in who you are, your character, your nature. I'm also confident in your purposes as well. And that moves us to point number two on this outline. Habakkuk rests and we can rest in our covenant relationship with God. You see, God's purpose, his plan was to call a people to himself to gather them together, to set his affection on them, to enter into a relationship with them based on a covenant, based on a promise. And Habakkuk is banking on this relationship. He's claiming this relationship. We know that because of how he calls out to God. You notice in in your Bibles there, he calls out, O Lord, this is all caps, L-O-R-D. It's not generic God of some type. No, this is all caps Lord, which when you see that in your scriptures, when you see that in your translations of the Bible, that means Yahweh. That's the covenant name for God, the name that his people used for him, this covenant that God made with them when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. God's people belong to their covenant Lord. Oh Lord, Habakkuk cries, oh God of the covenant, my God. You see, it's also personal. It's intimate. My God. Can't you just hear that? Uh, verse 12, oh Lord, my God, my Holy One. 
there's tenderness there. There's, there's intimacy there, even in moments of great perplexity. And then Habakkuk makes this statement in the middle of verse 12. Just sort of abruptly, we shall not die. And I didn't know what to do with that at first. Is that, is that cocky? Is that defiant? Is it presumptive? And it took a while just thinking about it and letting it stew in my mind. And then it hit me. No, that's a statement of faith. That's a moment of, of belief and trust for him in light of the fact that he knows God is the covenant Lord. I know you've made this covenant with us. I know you've promised to fulfill it because we're not doing such a great job of fulfilling it ourselves. I know we're not going to die because you've promised never to leave or forsake us. You have promised an eternal throne with an eternal king for us to be his people forever. So come what may, however these perplexing events unfold, Habakkuk's perplexing events, our perplexing events, however they unfold, we're his forever. Nothing is ever going to change that. See, what Habakkuk is basically doing in the first two points on this outline, in the first verse and a half that we're looking at, he's preaching to himself. He is reminding himself, he's reciting to himself what he knows to be true about God's character, about his nature, about his covenant promise and purposes to his people. This is certainly a strong and a sure foundation from which to then deal with these perplexities. And so now Habakkuk, as he wrestles with God, now he's ready to deal with some of these things that he finds so confusing for how he's perceiving and understanding things from his experience. Now it's time to ask God his questions, which is point three on our outline. Even as we start with this third point, I want you to notice two very important things. The first is the order that Habakkuk has shown us. He doesn't immediately launch into the beef that he has with God. He doesn't start by saying, God, what are you doing? How dare you? No, he, he knows he's got issues, but he says, all right, I'm going to start with a foundation. I'm going to start with what I know to be true. I'm going to remind myself. It's almost like he's tempering himself. He's holding himself back a little bit, which is a good thing. He's being careful. And we need to do the same. Think back to two weeks ago, if you will. Our goal here, by God's grace is to let our theology shape the understanding of our experience and not the other way around. Let what we know to be true about God, let that be the lens by which we look at our circumstance. That's how we're going to understand the situation that we find ourselves in that is so perplexing. Let's do it that way and not the reverse. Don't read your experience back on to God and say, oh, well, God must be like this because of what I'm experiencing. No, it's the other way around. So the order is important. <clears throat> the second thing here to note before we get into the specific questions Habakkuk has, note that Habakkuk has a problem 
with God and he goes straight to God with it. It's kind of like how we're supposed to handle human conflict. If I've got a problem with Jim, I need to go to Jim. I don't need to go to Bill and talk to Bill about my problem with Jim. I need to talk to Jim about my problem with Jim. Habakkuk addresses God. He says, oh, Lord. He says, my holy one. So let's look at what it is that has Habakkuk so perplexed. And it actually goes back to that first point. What has Habakkuk so perplexed is the nature and the character of God, what he knows to be true. But from Habakkuk's perspective and from his experience, it seems to him that God is behaving in a way that is contrary to his nature. And Habakkuk can't reconcile these two. How is it, he wants to know, that a holy God like you, and I know you're holy, but how is it that a holy God like you, with with eyes too pure to look on evil, to see evil, which means to, uh, to condone it, to approve of it, how can a holy God like you have planned and purposed to use these incredibly brutal pagans to punish your own people. How in the world can that be right? There are several things about using the the Chaldeans, who we think later are essentially the Babylonians, using them to, to bring punishment and judgment to God's people. There's several parts of that that make it incredibly perplexing to Habakkuk. First is is God's direct involvement with it. We, we talked last week about uh, God's direct involvement and control. And we've seen this week in these verses that he has ordained it to happen. He's established them. And then we also see it in verse 14. Habakkuk complains and he says, you, God, you make us like fish, like lowly creatures. You make us to be easy prey. Easy to get caught in a net or with a hook. Why, God, would you make it so easy for them to destroy us? How could you do this to your own people? And Habakkuk just cannot get over how evil the Chaldeans are. That God is using them, them of all people. It completely blows his mind. Their brutality, um, a, a hook is mentioned in these verses. History tells us that they would literally string their captives one to another after putting a hook through either their nose or their bottom lip. They would string their captives together. Utterly barbaric. And the end of verse 15, we see that they rejoice over their brutality. They're also idolatrous. Really doubly so. Because presumably they were like all the other pagan nations and they had a plethora of gods that they worshipped. But these dudes are so bad that they start to worship their own success. We saw in last week's verses, they sort of deify themselves. Uh, Verse 16, uh, they must be abandoning their false gods because they start to worship their nets and their hooks, the tools of their conquest. And so there is really deep irony here, here because what they're doing is robbing God of glory that's due only to him. Because it's him. It's him who gives them success. It's he that enables them to have success over his own 
people, let that sink in for just a minute. They're brutal. They are barbaric. They are idolatrous. They are also gluttonous. And they are gluttonous in a way that can never be satisfied. Uh, The second half of verse 16 and verse 17, you see this. And it keeps saying he, which that tripped me up a little bit for a while too. It keeps saying he did this and he did that. And so uh, the commentators say that that he is either personifying the nation and so that he is referring to the nation as a whole or that he might be referring to the king of the nation as he represents all the people. But either way, it says, therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net again and again and again and mercilessly killing nations forever? They are are a gluttonous people. Their hunger will never be satisfied. And possibly at the heart of the prophet's fear and perplexity here, Is God going to completely abandon and forsake his people? Will they be just allowed to go on in perpetuity and continue to do this again and again until God's people just don't even exist anymore? They'll be destroyed forever? They had just recently witnessed the utter annihilation of the ten northern tribes. Are they next? Is that what's going to happen to them? Will God intervene? They're on the brink of a conquest and a deportation that will seemingly reverse the trajectory of God's entire plan for his covenant people. This is what seems to Habakkuk to so contradict, to not fit with the character, the nature, and the purposes of God. And so Habakkuk wrestles with God. He he brings these seeming inconsistencies and contradictions to him, directly to him, and only after he has rehearsed what he knows to be true. Now, I could, but I'm not going to borrow from verses that we're going to come to in the future to try to show you how some of these seeming contradictions and inconsistencies get resolved for the prophet. I'm not going to do that. We'll get there eventually. But right now, I want us to sit with the prophet in his feelings, in his wrestling, in the process of his learning to trust, because that's what he's doing. He's learning to trust, even amidst all the perplexity. Let's look at the fourth step. The fourth step for for wrestling with God is make it or break it. Here is the key. See, every question may not get an answer. Every perplexity may not be resolved to our satisfaction, but I believe there is the opportunity to have them all placed in a proper perspective. So the fourth step here is to vigilantly pursue God's perspective. And this is why I included verse 1 of chapter 2, because I think it fits here, because it's the last part of what Habakkuk says before he stops to wait for God to respond. Chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. If we are to have right perspective, if we are to have God's perspective, There are two crucial things here for us. The first is waiting. 
persevering in that waiting, and the second is hearing from God. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to stand watch for something or not. I vaguely remember, and this was so frustrating this week, I've got this vague recollection, and I think that it was from college days, of having to to stay up all night for some type of a watch for something. And for the life of me, I can't remember what it was. I, I think maybe it, it was cars being broken into or something, and, and, and we were staying up trying to see if we could find it happening and alert the police about it. I guess the point is that it is so painful, it's so difficult to keep watch that I blocked the details from my memory, and that's why I can't even remember it fully. But waiting like that is hard. It's difficult, especially in the middle of the night, be that a, a literal night or or a figurative night, figurative darkness when we can't see what's going on, waiting in times of perplexity. It is hard work. You can hear that in this verse, stand at my watch post, stage, station myself on the tower. Y'all, that takes some diligence. And it really takes diligence because in the waiting, the time often seems to pass so slowly because very often we wait a long time before we ever see anything or ever hear anything. But you see, that's what Habakkuk knows that he needs. Habakkuk knows that he needs to go to his watch post. He needs to go up in the tower because he knows that he needs to hear from God. What will he say to me? How will he answer? Because what God says to me matters because he's the only one who has right perspective, right understanding, understanding that isn't broken and bent and hampered by the fall and by sin. Um, Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, um, really saw somewhat of a metaphor here of, of going up, of going up to an elevated position, to a watch post, to a tower, comparing that to the elevation of God's perspective, that God's ways, his understanding, his knowledge, it's higher than ours, and that's what we need. He sees the big picture in a way that we don't. He sees the end from the beginning, the prophet Isaiah says. We need God's perspective because ours is faulty. Ours is flawed. Our perspective, you know where it will lead us? It will always lead us to unbelief to doubt, to hopelessness. And those things will grip our hearts and, to make it all worse, our enemy will capitalize on that. He'll jump right on that and intensify it. See, if we make judgments on our fleshly way of understanding things, we'll always remain confused. But, but, if we'll join the prophet, and we'll go to our watch post, we'll go up to our tower, we'll pursue God's perspective. If we wait, we will hear from him. We will. Now, how are we going to hear from him? From his word. From his word. That's how we always hear from him. Our, pers- our uh, situation is a little bit different from Habakkuk's. Habakkuk heard from the Lord through an oracle. The Lord gave to Habakkuk an oracle. Well, God has given to us his complete revealed will 
and his finished holy scriptures. We have them. He's preserved them for us. And both of those things, the oracle Habakkuk received and God's complete word that we have, both are God directly speaking to us. We need to hear from God if we're going to have his perspective, if we're going to have a right perspective. Now, I told you that I wasn't going to seek in this sermon to resolve all of Habakkuk's perplexities. But I do want to touch on two. Two perplexities that Habakkuk, that you and I, we could instantly benefit from having a bit of God's perspective on rather than our own. And here are the two perplexities. One uh, pertains to righteousness, and the second one pertains to suffering. Part of Habakkuk's big hang-up is at the end of verse 13. God's going to let the wicked swallow up the righteous. Habakkuk says, we're more righteous than they are. And this is interesting. This is very much a human, fleshly perspective at work because we are quick to look around at others in an attempt to feel better about ourselves. We say, oh yeah, yeah, I've got some issues, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. And he's really got issues. Perhaps the Israelites weren't as bad as the Chaldeans. They may not have been as bad, but that doesn't make them good. They may have been less guilty, perhaps. Perhaps they were guilty of fewer things, but that did not make them innocent. Paul said when he was speaking to the Christians at Ephesus, He said, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Were the Chaldeans somehow more dead than the Israelites? Are we somehow less dead than the really bad people we like to compare ourselves to? That doesn't even make sense. More dead, less dead, dead is dead. And when we look closely and honestly... The Israelites were guilty. We are guilty of the very same things the Chaldeans were guilty of. It might look different on the surface. It might vary in degrees. We might not be literally as physically brutal as the Chaldeans were, but none of us loves his neighbor as himself. Not a single one. All of us are idolatrous. All of us are robbing glory from God in one way or another, thinking that we're the reason for our success, that it was our hard work that got us here. It was our talent. We're all gluttons. We've all got insatiable appetites for the things of this world rather than finding our satisfaction in God and in God alone. This complaint of Habakkuk's about God's people being more righteous than the Chaldeans, this is really a setup. It's a setup for a verse that we're going to get to the next time, probably the most famous verse in all of Habakkuk, that that talks about real righteousness and where real righteousness comes from. Um, The second way that we can benefit now from God's perspective involves suffering. 
Habakkuk is concerned about the suffering of God's people. Today, we're concerned about how folks are suffering or are going to suffer in the future. Now, how does God's perspective on suffering differ from our own? Let me give you just one way. In short, it differs in that we are at the center of our understanding of suffering. Eyes are focused and fixated on us. When the way to have a proper perspective on suffering is to understand suffering relative to God's own suffering. God's suffering for us on our behalf. You know, a common, a very common complaint that folks have is, how could a loving God allow such suffering in the world? I don't understand that. Well, the quickest way to have that perplexity solved for you or at least silenced is to consider how God involved himself in the suffering of humanity, how God himself suffered for his people. The the depth of suffering that the Father endured in sending the Son, the suffering that Jesus endured for us in being separated from the Father, forsaken by him, as the Father poured out his wrath on sin. We, we sang about it, right? We sang about it so beautifully. The depth of that suffering is, is staggering. And to add to that, the depth of the love that Jesus had that motivated him to be willing to suffer that for us, we can't begin to comprehend any of that. It's far too deep for our finite minds. And that's where our perspective gets corrected. That's where our perspective joins with Paul. Uh, Paul in in Romans 11, 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Friends, we need to wrestle with God, but we need to do it well. We need to ground ourselves in the truth of who God is, of of his covenant love for us and relationship with us. And then we need to wait. We need to wait. We need to hear from him. We need his perspective to help resolve our wrestling. May God grant us the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you help us to wrestle well with you. Oh, we want to be careful, Lord. You are holy. You are right. You are just. You are true in all your ways. And and so we know that we are not those things. And so we want to be careful when in our wrestling. But we see that you welcomed the prophets. We know that you'll welcome ours because it comes from a place of weakness. It comes from a place of saying, God, we don't understand And Lord, help us to do it rooted in a place of of where we know you, where we are banking on these things to be true about you. And then when our faulty and flawed experience and perception of things conflicts with that, help us to take it to you and take it directly to you so that you might grant to us perspective. You might show us your wisdom. You might show us your love. You might show us again how you suffered for us. 
Help us to see that most clearly and most plainly. Especially this week, Lord, how Jesus bore our sorrows, how he bore our sin on the tree, how he absorbed your wrath as you poured it out on our sins as those sins were laid on Christ. Oh, help us to know that and to rejoice in that and to rest in that this week of all weeks, Lord, and every day. We ask for this help in Jesus' name and we expect to receive it. Amen.